stage, Bob Moritz, Global Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of PwC. Good morning, everyone. Thank you to be the early birds sitting here, fighting all the uh, possibilities uh, so that we guarantee a great conversation. And my name is Tian Wei. I am the moderator for this panel on the global economy and the state of the world. I myself is a moderator and host coming from China Global Television, the program called World Inside with Tian Wei. So this is a big one. The global economy and the state of the world, we could spend 10 days here. But I'm so glad that I'm joined by a very capable international business leader, Bob Morris, global chairman of PwC. I know Bob for a long time, but I think every conversation we had over the years, there's always fresh input given the circumstances. So Bob, I don't want to do too much introduction. Everybody has a perspective about exactly what the world is like and the state of the economy. But I want to jump directly to you about the global supply chains. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that's on the mind of every business person in this world. What do you think might be some of the latest signs that could help us to analyze better about the real state of the global economy, please. Yeah, thank you, Tian, and a pleasure to be with everybody here today. And as PwC, we've been knowledge partner for 14 years. The reason for that is the importance of the countries that are in the global economy that are represented in this room. And to your point, Tian, let's go back a year. The countries here, the economy was thought as positive globally and very positive locally. Mm. That CEO community had a degree of confidence in terms of what was going on. And here we are a year later, and you have a concern about the slowing of a global economy, but yet the representatives and the CEOs here in these countries are still very positive about the economies and their opportunities in their region. And that's important. Having said that, they can't have a sense of complacency. Mm -hmm. And let's talk now about supply chain in that regard. What has happened over the last few years is organizations have worried about the concentration risk in supply chains, the resiliency of supply chains, and other aspects like that. Many governments are trying to incent more onshoring as well from a policy perspective. But the CEO community, the C-suite, is continued to focus on four major themes. Are the economics right? Do I have the resiliency and agility of that supply chain from a particular organization and or country? Mm. Can I actually be greener and cleaner? And likewise, can I get the data to make faster, better decisions? And that's really important because historically supply chains and the decisions as to where to go were focused on a couple of key themes. It was what kind of skills are in the country? Is there availability of resources in the country? What's infrastructure look like in the country? Right. And they typically would look at as well the risk factors. Is there certainty? 
Is there regulatory risk? And is there ease of doing business? So the two new things right now are the green element of that supply chain and the data. And that's where digitization technology and AI will be really important for management teams to think about how can we create opportunities for people to use our supply chains, mm. either corporates or the countries that are actually providing them. Right. And that's where the upside is going forward for countries and companies. I'm glad you already mapped out some of the important factors we would like to dig into a bit later. But that, about resilience, uh, we have seen uh, political environment changes over the years. Uh, now, some minor signs that things uh, might be getting a bit smoother. For example, with some important <coughs> bilateral meetings that are taking place on the sideline of uh, the events that we are seeing here today. What do you think the business leaders would like to say to the political leaders that are coming here during the APEC week? What is likely to be the common ground between the business community and the political leaders. So let me take this from three angles. First, as it relates to particularly the big elephant in the room, the China-US relationships, what we're looking for is a, a de-escalation and more bring the temperature down in terms of a little bit more normalcy. It can never necessarily be totally normal, but a little bit more normalcy than mm -hmm. the tension-filled world that we've had, particularly over the last year since we were last together. Second is the signs that there's a willingness and a wanting to actually continue the trade. And let's be fair here for a second. The amount of trade between the two countries and the importance of the two countries to the world, very, very important. Yes, indeed. And last but not least is to make sure that, I'll call it the technocrats, those that should be talking to one another regularly about policy changes and trade agreements and other aspects, are able to talk more freely to enable the infrastructure and, and, and trade and direct investment to actually move forward. And that's the importance of today. The second point, though, is let's not limit this to just the US and China. The reason this particular group of people together is exactly that, which is how do I get more policies and procedures in place, more certainty in place to actually move forward? You heard from the secretary a moment ago on stage talking about her responsibilities we will hear shortly from the Prime Minister of Malaysia in terms of how to bring that more sense of certainty because that's what the CEO community wants is, right. is less risk and uncertainty as they make their investment decisions. And last but not least is the third element here is how do you indicate the signs of the direction of travel? Because when you're making decisions on supply chain, you're thinking about not only the conditions that exist today, but the conditions that will exist over the next three, five years because you're looking for that stability. So not only are we interested in today's policies and procedures, but what are the plans going forward? And that's some of the dialogue that we hope to hear today mm. from many different policymakers and politicians that are visiting with us here in San Francisco. You actually hit a very important power word, dialogue. Used to be the case that we say that all the time, every minute almost, and it's not a luxury, and now it becomes quite a luxury. So that's also what I want to ask with you, um, Bob. That is, what does it take to have real dialogues? Yeah. Um, I want to hit this from two perspectives. To have meaningful, engaging dialogue requires an element of openness and discussions around the challenges and the opportunities from both sides mm -hmm. or multiple sides, depending on who's in the room. And second is to understand the rationale and the reason why 
not just the what, but the why behind it. So people can understand where each other of the parties are coming from. That's important to start the discussion. The reality is though, you want to enable trust. And trust means you have to deliver on what you committed to deliver previously. And that's equally as important. So it's one thing to have dialogue and discussion, but it's another thing to execute and deliver against that dialogue to enable future trust so the foundation is even stronger right. moving forward. So as we sit here today, the one thing I would say is discussion isn't good enough. It's the execution of getting things done that's gonna be equally important to enable that trust to continue to sustain itself. People will say, are you guys having on the stage communication 101? <laughs> but actually, sometimes this could become a luxury these days. Having said that though, how are we going to set all of these conversations with the backdrop of the Asia Pacific, which is one of the most dynamic regions and certainly one that we are all embracing right now? Given the fact there are so many different ideas throwing around uh, related to this region, so how are we looking at the state of the economy of this region related to these discussions as to what kind of grouping should we have, uh, what's going to be the nature of these different groupings, what are likely to be the chemistry among all of them, if there's any. So Bob, as so, a business leader. As a business leader, I would say for PwC and for that matter, all of our clients, we see a lot of upside in the region. And you see that upside driven by three primary rationales. One is the domestic economies are continuing to grow. The mm. trends underlying those are very important. As you think about the rise of the consumer and the consumer, what they need in terms of goods and services. The second thing is that those particular countries and the companies within them are now more alternative sources for supply chain and creation of goods and services and important to the worldwide economy. Right. And that's equally as important. And last but not least, it is not only the issues of the economy, but the contributions that will come from this part of the world as well to future endeavors. Technology, digitization, AI is a good example of that, where the skill sets today are fantastic in the region to actually be leveraged and, and, and turned into a big opportunity. So it's not only the economics, it's also the policy setting, the standard setting and other aspects that are really important. And we hope that the countries in this room, in this cooperative, are more so at the table, at the global table, to make sure that their points of view are being brought and the advances and in innovation that are happening here are brought to the rest of the world. We see the governance of technologies, including about the digital technologies, such as AI, have been lagging behind the real development of these technologies, so much so that we have seen this trend for almost past the four decades, in fact since the very beginning of the computer and stuff like that. So, but anyway, are we seeing with the recent discussion, both at the UN and you know, earlier taking place in the UK, bringing all the players together around the table, real consensus about the discussion you on AI? You, you do not have consensus yet on AI. Um, this is a very early stage right now in terms of what's happening. And let, let's be clear, AI has been in existence for a really long time. What we're talking about Upside now down. is the generative AI and what's happening in terms of autonomous AI where things can be done in such a way that it is replacing humanity. And within that, it's got the ability to bring the, uh, call it the language that it's so interactive that it's got an ease of use. 
And that's really important. So now let's go back. You've got actually three things that are fundamental in thinking about the standard setting around AI. First is how comfortable and how trusting are we in the coding that's been done? So having some kind of construct around what is responsible coding to make sure that we flush out that and, and have a buyer beware type of concept in terms of if I'm using it, I understand what the coding will lead me towards in terms of the outcome. The second piece is gonna be data. The AI only works if it's got access to data. The question is what access is provided to the AI to give whatever outcome comes out of that. And that's equally as important in understanding that. If I'm gonna limit the AI to have just the data in a particular country, that may give me the basis for something, but it's a very country answer, specific answer rather than a global answer. And that becomes a problem as well. And then last but not least is to make sure that the AI that is created is governed appropriately, supervised appropriately, and then is in fact mm. delivering what is intended. And those three things are kindly being discussed in various forms. What we do not have today yet is the ability to converge on what that responsible AI looks like. Mm. There's a number of frameworks that have been put out, but what the world needs to do, and that's why this region can be so influential in this area, is actually be at that table to converge even more so the collective thinking that's happening in country, across sectors, right. and with government and business working more so together. We have seen this Asia-Pacific region very dynamic in bringing consensus. For example, some of the very basic uh, trade mechanisms uh, given the backdrop of a ever-evolving world, has been functioning really quite well uh, in this region. So would that be a wonderful precedence in terms of people coming to consensus on all the technology-related governance as well, um, particularly regarding generative AI, as you said? Absolutely. Where are we now? Once again, the state of the world. We're at that early stage, but I do think there's an opportunity for the discussions today and what comes out of these meetings to continue to be a role model for the world and then for the world to jump in, but, but to make sure that we are having them in a, a very open way, because there is different points of view on this. And back to your point around discussion, it's going to be discussion, agreement, and then ultimately framing this up in the right way for people to apply it at the local level. And I do think there's a big opportunity. Organizations are seeing it today in terms of the amount of innovation that's happening in this part of the world. And I think they're going to want this going forward because you need that trust mm. in the AI as that becomes both demonstrably important to them to deal with effectiveness and efficiency as we go through a slowing economy and margin improvement. But at the same time, AI is dealing with that and disrupting entirely strategies and business propositions of corporates and for that matter, countries as well. Mm. And the wonderful thing is how will the latest AI technologies and governance of it work with the sustainability, which is one of the core issues that we have seen being focused on during this year's uh, uh, APEC CEO Summit. So what do you see is likely to be the synergy here? There's a first question, which is the definition of sustainability. Right. If we're gonna think about climate, there's a huge opportunity for how AI can actually help with that. Now let's get very granular for a second. Um, if I'm thinking about the efficiency of a building, there's not enough humans and not enough computing power right now to actually indicate how I can be most effective and efficient in energy use of that particular building. And the AI is powerful enough today and the computing power, uh, computing power is sufficient enough today to do much better than the human decisions can be. 
there's a tremendous opportunity as a result to think about how can we drive for more efficiency using AI as we think about the energy uses of buildings like this, for example. Having said that, you've got another element of sustainability, and that is the implications to humanity and labor. And as AI comes forward, there's many different doomsday discussions around how many jobs will be taken away from that. And yes, if we don't actually think about how do we enable the AI to be more effective and efficient, while at the same time redeploy the talent in new and different areas, we will have a mismatch which will create more social unrest, which is something we cannot afford to have. And what we're talking about here is a pretty big timing gap. Humanity has proven over time, anytime there's a large scale transformation, impactful on labor, we have historically been really good sometime thereafter of what, figuring out what to do with that excess labor capacity and put it into new and different ways. Mm -hmm. There's an equal need to deal with that innovation as much as it is the use of the AI to think about the supply and the demand of talent. So when we think about sustainability, we should be thinking climate clearly because we're not doing enough and we are far behind as will be evidenced in some of the COP discussions coming up. But let's not forget the implications to labor, workforce and humanity overall as well. Here comes similar logic with the question of AI and governance of AI. Uh, we see geopolitics changes so much over the past few years and that people are wondering whether we should wait for decisions coming so-called from the big powers and then we move. Or rather, we should have parallel passages with different players trying to play their role and trying to bring consensus together. Of course, this means a lot of different chemistries. When you have that, you need to have time to sort it out. But still, you know, which one to you as a business leader would likely to work the best? The reality is we're not in a world where we can afford to wait for the powers to be to make a decision and rely on government alone or anybody else to actually make that decision. Innovation at the local levels, cascaded up and then ultimately scaled up is the way to make progress. And what we see in the world today is the business community even more so, the, the concepts within the business community actually driving the innovation, it be it the deployment of capital mm -hmm. in the AI space or the deployment of finance in the climate space. And we can no longer afford to wait for government policy degree. That's going to take way too long. So it's actually got to be the combination of business working together more so in their ecosystems to drive the change. And to your point, Tian, the reality is when business does this, it's not just what they do with themselves for themselves. It's what they do with themselves and within the ecosystem they're operating with. And climate's a great example of this where any individual company can make some decisions, but it's not enough. What they need to do is actually deal with scope three and other elements of their supply chain mm -hmm. and to force that to happen to work much more so together. So it's gonna be a lot of little things that ultimately they get scaled up to drive the change that's needed to be much more sustainable and achieve the goals we're looking to achieve. We can't afford to wait for some grand decision or a big bang theory that's gonna come through to save us. As they say, small but beautiful. Having said that, though, business communities have uh, their own very specific interests and core issues to work with. For example, for uh, financial benefits, that's always one of the goals of any business. Uh, so how to make sure things like greenwashing, uh, PR, mainly uh, related to the so-called discussions of uh, AI governance, and also, meanwhile, how would business work with political leaders when there are rules that are preventing free trade? 
that are preventing the flow of data and consensus of data among business and between business and the societies. Let's take Sorry, I'm, it's an overloaded question because I see our time is running up. Yeah, let's take two examples very quickly. First off, as you think about climate, greenwashing, and all the elements of that, you do need a set of standards for what should be reported Indeed. and trust within that and accountability. To give people a sense, if you look at the, the European companies today, the top 50 of them, there's rules and regulations about what they should report, and the system hasn't changed. What I mean by that is the incentives for management changes have come to life. What is really interesting, Tian, if you look at last year's discussions, only one of 50 CEOs had their compensation impacted because they did not meet the green objectives. One. So it either tells you we're not putting enough emphasis on that or our setting of the goal was way too low. What do you think? Which one? I actually think it's probably a combination of the two <laughs> that actually gets you there. But the reality is you have to change the entirety of the system. What is the strategy at a, at a senior level within the C-suite? How are you incenting the right behaviors? Are you having the right necessary data to make the better decisions? Mm. And how can you survive and thrive? What's interesting in this part of the world, almost 60% of the CEOs in this part of the world believe their businesses are not going to be sustainable if they don't radically change in the next 10 years. Mm. They're going to have to move with speed. They're going to be very agile to deal with these policy decisions that are changing radically and are uncertain. And it's going to be the benefit of those leadership teams that actually are most agile and take advantage of opportunities and mitigate the downsized risks. They need better data, quicker decision, less bureaucracy. I'm going to say that's going to be important for corporates as much as it's going to be important for governments. Mr. Moritz, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Tian. Thank you so much. Bob Moritz. Appreciate it. Please rise and welcome to the stage, His Excellency Anwar Ibrahim, Prime Minister of Malaysia. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Mr. Prime Minister. What a pleasure to see you again. Thank you, Dinwei. I know this morning you are working with your colleagues in order to be here. See, <laughs> there's a lot of things coming up every day that we need to work so that we will be both um, at the focus of our attention on the most important issues and be able to look for solutions. Mr. Prime Minister, therefore, I want to ask you, what is, in your view, the state of the world? It's a big question. <laughs> but coming from political leaders' perspective, Mr. Prime Minister, what does this region mean, Asia-Pacific, in terms of bringing the best to the state of the world, from your perspective? Mm. Thank you, Tinwe. Um, should always start with easy questions, not the difficult ones. <laughs> I'm familiar with Tianwei for a number of times, and, and thank you for this opportunity. It's an August assembly, and uh, 
important players and role. Uh, you start with this question about the role of political leadership. There's a lot of, this, of, of, of trust deficit among political leaders. And you want a vibrant democracy and to promote development, then the role of the private sector, captains of industry, becomes more pivotal, more relevant, more critical now than ever before. And APEC remains to be one of the more uh, significant and has to play a dynamic role. There have been naysayers, uh, negative perceptions, but I still believe APEC is like the rock of Gibraltar. It has a role, it has to succeed, and this is one forum that we have the opportunity to engage effectively. Mm. I'm extremely pleased, for example, last night when President Biden made the reference uh, looking forward to this engagement with uh, President Xi Jinping. It's very important that we take a different view. The, the captains of industry, the business leaders, must view this unlike the protectionist, the limited concerns of many political leaders. Therefore, uh, to my mind, we in the Asia-Pacific look forward to this engagement because it would be an immense benefit to the region and to the world. As we speak, the meeting, I guess, is taking place right now uh, somewhere in, near um, San Francisco. So what do you hope, exact hope, I just put it this way, that this meeting could bring to the discussions that we're having right now? We talk about inclusivity. We talk about globalized uh, and globalization. We have to accept that uh, the uh, global situation geopolitics has changed. And um, we in Malaysia, for example, in the region, do acknowledge that. Um, China has a role and has to be engaged effectively. There must be effort, greater effort, to ensure that it is uh, part of the global community. And, and um, well, there is competition, fair. Um, but uh, this engagement, for example, between President Biden and Xi Jinping. To me, it is critical because it should give a clear message that we are here to be able to work together and trust each other to resolve serious problems, climate issues in Ukraine or Gaza. There are too many contentious issues in the world and you must try and engage uh, accepting the fact that they, you may not achieve all the desired results, but mm -hmm. this engagement is important to, to, to try and establish areas that we can work together. Countries like, like Malaysia and ASEAN cannot be forced to, be, to see the world and the big powers um, in the Cold War mindset. Um, uh, United States you know, have been a traditional lie has uh, done an immense task in the early phase of development. The total, example, the total um, investments and trade with Malaysia is uh, led by the United States. But things are changing. There's increased, increasing trade investment with China. So why then put us in the fix uh, in a zero-sum game for the benefit of countries, emerging economies, and also for the West and the East. 
I believe that the solution is, of course, greater collaboration. And uh, this Cold War mindset must end because the world in the post-normal times is more chaotic, more complex and full of contradictions. It requires leaders with vision, with commitment, with shared ideals mm -hmm. to be able to resolve it effectively. And do you think your idea is representative of your colleagues from ASEAN? Well, we have built some sort of consensus, even the more contentious issues like Myanmar. There are, of course, particular differences, but we all share the view that it must not be unjust, it must not discriminate, it must not um, uh, continue with atrocities against your own people. So there is a five-point consensus, there are absolutely differences. Right. Similarly, with the United States or China, there are different uh, level of emphasis. But generally, we want to preserve the region, the one, the most vibrant uh, economic uh, region, uh, as um, independent. If I, in Malaysia, would use the term fiercely independent to express our views, to share our concerns, but to uh, accept the start realities. The United States and the West remain very important ally to us, and China is a very important trusted neighbor that would help in our attempt to prepare the economy and ensure a peaceful, um, vibrant uh, region economically. Let's talk about the economy. Mr. Prime Minister, I know you and your colleagues have been working on that within your own country, but also looking at the region. We see some of the uh, important trade mechanisms working extremely well uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. CPTPP, for example, is one of those. Um, and also we see RCEP as well. So how do you see these kind of trade mechanisms uh, are helping us? And moving forward, we know the difficulties. But still, how can we maintain a certain level of stability and predictability? Earlier you heard uh, Mr. Morris coming from the business perspective, asking uh, for that as business leader. So Mr. Prime Minister. I don't think we have a choice. We emerge as a relatively more successful country economically in Malaysia, registering 9-10% growth and even budget surplus in the 90s because ours is a trading nation. Um, and and um, through FTAs those days. Mm -hmm. The more FTAs we have, the more beneficial it is for the country. Now with new mechanisms in place, we should fully utilize. That is why I say that, uh, and I believe that countries must be able to uh, engage more and uh, accept the fact that a multilateral arrangement is more beneficial. And multilateral arrangement means that countries cannot be marginalized or discriminated for ideological reasons, for re other reasons, uh, issue hegemony, whatever. So I, I, that is my position. And I think uh, most countries in ASEAN share this view. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of the synergies among economies in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, we see uh, there's a debate about the so-called global north, so-called global south, but Actually, uh, among, between the North and South, and even among the so-called South itself, there's tremendous synergy going on. 
Uh, I could put on the example between Malaysia and China, but of course that's only one of those many examples. So how do you see these kind of synergy that are already taking place, despite of the fact that we have difficulties geopolitically for the world? I don't share a view of this bifurcation of contradictions. That's why I always uh, stress upon the new realities that the old mindset of the Cold War must end. Uh, it does not mean it's just ended. Look at the COP28. What is our concern? The industrialized rich countries committed uh, to uh, uh, pay 100 billion and it's not forthcoming. Uh, so many other impositions for the emerging economies. And I think it's, to me, it's unhealthy. Mm. We need to, therefore, have an effective mechanism that we will not uh, have this sort of division. Now, um, and that's why I say, uh, I'm, I still maintain that the only way forward is to, to see uh, us as one community. Climate change is not something peculiar to uh, the West or the East. We all suffer immensely. And I even referred to the issues uh, either Ukraine or Gaza. We all suffer. And these issues should not be allowed to further divide, uh, to sow the seed of dissension. And we must have a common vision, I mean, including, of course, the private sector. I don't believe that, I, at least I see the, the new dynamics and um, narratives in, on CSR, on inclusivity, on justice, on better wages for the workers, on, um, on issues of climate. There are total concerns, and these are universal concerns. What we lack in politics, in business, in my humble view, is lack of humanity, lack of compassion. We compartmentalize people. We sow the seed of differences and dissension. And I think this has to change. I'm appealing to you to help this in this course, this discourse, to, to, to present a new narrative. You can't depend only to the political leaders because they have been entrusted and to a large extent, to some extent they have succeeded, but to a major extent, they have also failed miserably. So we need now the new configuration where the private sector should play a more dominant and assertive role together with the civil society to make sure that whether you call it democracy or participatory democracy or people's engagement, work. And um, I state my case. <laughs> but how would you be of support for that? We see country different one from another. When you are encouraging the business communities to engage more, of course the business communities also have their core issues to work on. For example, how to make the business healthy. So the political leaders have to be accountable. It's true. And also has to be supportive. Yes. Providing the platform for everybody, including many of the brilliant business leaders here. We should all be accountable. I mean, business leaders too. Uh, you, you know, I've been uh, quite unpopular in some of my remarks uh, when we had this to deal with this uh, scandal, uh, one, one MDB scandal. I said it would not have happened without the complicity or some international financial concerns, including in that case Goldman Sachs. So I think we all must have this humility mm. to accept that things have to change and uh, to acknowledge that we have had some limitations. And on humility, you know, my, my, my standard uh, uh, quote is from T.S. Eliot. Mm. The only wisdom 
we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. And humility is endless. So let us then accept the fact that in order to ensure that we resolve major outstanding issues of the world, from AI that we heard just now, to climate change, to poverty eradication, we have to make the necessary adjustments and accept the fact that either, even in democracy, you, you talk about democratic accountability. It's not just uh, elections every five years. But uh, so the accountability is not only among political leaders, but also business leaders and civil society leaders. Mm. And, and is, uh, um, in the Islamic tradition, interesting enough, one of the uh, sayings and traditions of the Prophet Muhammad, which we learned from the early age, is that all of you are responsible and all of you, without exception, is accountable for your action and your deeds. Of course, the next question is, do, do people actually implement these uh, principles? Right. The answer is, of course, no. So I think, um, uh, anyway, you are right in saying that we all should be accountable. We do more. For a government, like say Malaysia, what do we do? We have a Madani framework. Uh, there must be clarity in policies. That, and to acknowledge the fact that the country cannot move forward without the involvement of the private sector, without foreign direct investment. So all uh, possible avenues, including incentives, must be brought in um, to, to, to ensure that better right. uh, employment and address. So with clarity policies, including energy transition issue of uh, digital transformation, this has got to be clearly laid down. And our task with the bureaucracy is to Im effectively implement this so that the private sector understand clearly what is to be expected for any of these countries. Thank you. Mr. Prime Minister, I really enjoyed the quotes that you had from the, both the saints and the poets. Um, certainly, they are providing a lot of inspirations for us, but I still have to be pragmatic in my question. We are seeing uh, the coming year, 2024, with many elections going on in the world. Um, these economies, big, small, and yet, there's always an issue of how political leaders are going to work on their domestic agenda vis-a-vis uh, -vis the state of the world. So being a responsible player. From your perspective, representing the political leaders, how, what are some of the important steps do you see that are crucial these days for political leaders? Of course, uh, there's an interesting quote from Churchill, the statesman, things for the next, or plans for the next generation, a politician for the next elections. Do we see more statesmen or do we see well, more politicians? I think you need to combine both, Jen. Because you think of the next generation, you will lose the elections. <laughs> <laughs> you only think of the next elections, you condemn the next generation. Mm. So I think it is uh, important to make sure that both of these concerns are met that people do understand the vision, the policies, and political decision, however populist, cannot condemn the next generation. I am fortunate in this because we have secured a comfortable 
two-thirds majority in parliament, and my election is another four years. You expect very tough action and decisions I'm going to make for Malaysia. I see you're talking from a very neutral perspective <laughs> right now. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, now we are at an important crossroad. Um, economies, whether they are big or small, or the so-called middle-sized economies, are all trying to strive with the circumstances they have to deal with. What do you think are some of the most important tools for political leaders like you to work with your business communities and also work on the economic partnerships with your friends and partners in the Asia-Pacific region? Well, from my limited experience uh, in the early period, the 90s as finance minister, and now, I think uh, political stability is very critical. But clarity of policies is what is required. Mm. Consistent, clear policies, whether it's energy or economic program or investments, etc. Then, of course, effective implementation. We all talk about ease of doing uh, business. We all talk about one-stop agency. And I used to remind my bureaucrats, the one-stop agency does not mean that it stops there. You know, it means that you have to facilitate and accelerate the process mm. with clear uh, procedures and policies. And I think if that is done, in, in, I'm very fortunate, for example, uh, from China, from United States, uh, from Europe, and also the region, we have established or record investments far exceed our projections. I mean, I'm talking about real huge. And this signifies a confidence of the private sector to the way we, we decide policies and we do business. Um, my take, based on our past experience, is good governance. Um, we must be tough on policies and tough against corruption and this uh, way of doing business, uh, squandering public funds to enrich the, those in power. And that is made very clear. I think we are in the, on the right track to propel the economy in the country in the next few years. Mm. Very ambitious, and I think based on the, the track record in the last six, seven months, we can achieve that. Finally, before we go, we only have 30 seconds to go, Mr. Prime Minister. So, how political leaders like you and your colleagues to make sure that you're not being hijacked by rhetorics but be able to focus on the real issue and responsible for the next generation, as you said, from Mr. Churchill, Mr. Prime Minister. Yeah, it's not pious platitudes. Yeah. Because finally, you are judged by your action. People do give some allowance in the first few months, grace period, but then they will have to see whether you mean business. All political leaders, all opposition leaders um, come up and uh, attain power by fighting corruption and abuse of power. The test is when you are in the responsible position whether you can really deliver. The second, of course, clear economic policies. Mm. And you're right because people become... That's why I started with trust deficit among, uh, against leaders and political leaders because the rhetoric, the pious platitudes is not met with concrete action. And thank you very much again. I need uh, your support. M Malaysia and ASEAN is the most 
stable and vibrant uh, place to invest. And I look forward to meeting you individually uh, in Malaysia. God willing, inshallah. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mr. Prime Minister. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Great to see you again. Great to see you again.